Okay. Be on. <laughs> Bridget. Hi, hi. Yes, hi. Oh my God, this is so great. This is like my first time really getting to meet you, I guess. So, hello. Right. Okay. Hello. I'm but we're sisters already. We're sisters. We've been doing this. Most definitely. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and do our little intro and then we're going to jump right into this. So, hello and welcome to the What Is This, the 12th episode of A Girl Like Me Live. I'm in disbelief every week. Um, Which is a new live interactive um, streaming series, Advancing Health and Wellness Discussions and Education Among Women Living With and Vulnerable to HIV. Every two weeks, ICC will sit down with different co-hosts to chat about key topics in our communities. In today's episode, I will get to talk with Nurse Bridget, that's my name for her, but I will get to talk Bridget P. about disclosure to non-HIV providers. Um, I feel like this is such an important topic, and I'm so grateful that you're the one to sit down here and discuss it with us. Um, first, I would like for you to introduce yourself and how your affiliations and how you can know the All right. I'm so let me just say I'm super excited to be here. I love the Well Project so much. So I'm Bridget Piku. Um, I am a CAB member with The Well Project. I'm one of their bloggers as well. Um, I'm also affiliated with um, ANAC, which is the Association of Nurses and AIDS Care. Um, I actually just became president-elect of my local chapter for ANAC, um, which I'm excited about. Yeah, thank you. And then um, I'm also a board member for an organization called um, HARP, which is Healthy Aging um, with HIV in Palm Springs. So excited to be here oh you be done oh, <laughs> oh and i'm sorry i forgot to mention because i always forget to mention i am also a woman living with hiv so it's not always at the forefront of my mind so sometimes i forget to say it but i am also a woman living with hiv well thank you once again for being here with us so we're talking disclosure to non-hiv providers when yeah when you say non-HIV providers, like who's the first one that pops into your So what happens a lot of times is that our primary care provider is not our HIV provider. Um, and so mostly we're talking about the conversations that come after you find your diagnosis. Um, because unfortunately for a lot of people, um, when they find out that they're HIV positive, they haven't ever been in healthcare consistently. Um, they may not have a PCP. They may have, you know, just gone in for regular STD testing. Um, unfortunately, I've had patients that have found out through giving blood um, that they're HIV positive. So we are talking about these conversations that you have to have with anyone who is not your HIV provider and or not your primary care provider who may not know about your status, um, who you may have some anxiety about talking to your status about. Yeah. Um, so it can be, so disclosing to anybody is kind of a, a, a thing, um, unless you have gotten to a point where you're totally comfortable um, with your status. And so every time you walk into someplace different where people don't know you um, and you don't know how they feel or what education level they have when it comes to HIV, it can be a little bit scary. You're right, it can be scary. Um, are you hearing me okay? I just want to make sure before. Okay. 
um, that is scary. And for someone who isn't receiving their primary care through their infectious disease providers or whatever, I can admit. For me, I know that I have to ignore half of what these people say to me when I'm not in like an HIV environment because it seems like oftentimes they they don't have as much knowledge or information. I'm hearing a little echo myself too. Oh my, but um, they don't have as much information as like my. HIV center or wherever I'm going. So they may be going off of really outdated things that they learned back in medical school. So, you know, where I've been working with my HIV provider this whole time and now I'm sent off to this strange office and they're telling me information that I know isn't right. So sometimes I kind of have to um, block out what they're saying <laughs> because so, you want to block it out. I can hear it. So you don't want to block information that they're giving is important important information. information. Can you guys hear the echo coming? So one of the don't hear the echo. It is the echo coming back. Let me see. Hang on. Okay. Okay. Is that better? Okay. I can hear you fine. Okay. Okay. So you don't want to block information that you're learning because it's important information. What we need to do is I'm talking slow because I can hear the What we have to do is find a way to have the conversation with the providers. Initially, to get it out of the way, you don't have to be uncomfortable with them. They're not they're uncomfortable with you. Right? Because a lot of times, people's attitudes are based on what you said. They don't know, they haven't had enough information. Maybe they've never actually met And so it makes them uncomfortable and they don't know how to do it. So, our duty. So that we get the best plan, that everything is available, and to be able to answer questions that they have, I'm going to have to get to the I'm seeing you because I haven't actually done There we go. Okay. Now we're good. Now I can't hear you. <laughs> okay. So what I'm going to do is when I'm not speaking, I will mute and then I'm going to ask that you do the same thing. Maybe that'll fix it. Okay. okay. So I would like for you to repeat. Okay. I would like for you to repeat what you were saying. So, yes, sometimes it is that they don't know. So, don't necessarily block it out. Everybody, don't follow my my ways because, you know, I just be doing stuff. But they might not know. And I would like Bridget to explain again the importance of even those non-HIV providers. Okay. So, what I was saying is that it's really important not to block out the information that they're giving you because 
you've been offended or because your feelings have been hurt. And that's really more so what it is. It's not so much that you get offended, it's that your feelings get hurt because you're going to a medical provider who you expect to be a professional, right? So you don't wanna block out any information that they're giving you because you were sent to them for a reason. Either they're a specialist, um, they are now going to be doing your primary care, this person is going to be taking care of you. So it's important that you have a trusting, um, relationship with them. You don't necessarily have to love them, but there needs to be mutual respect between you and them. And it's just like with any relationship that you're in, if there's something hovering under the surface, it blocks effective communication. And so um, I say all the time that, that persons living with HIV, we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because even though we may be comfortable with our status, nine times out of 10, it's going to make someone else who's not a part of the HIV world or who doesn't already know someone who's living with HIV, it's gonna make them uncomfortable. So we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's a lot of responsibility and it's not necessarily fair, but until it's different, that's what we have to do. So the important thing is if you go to someone and you see someone, a provider, a clinician, whether it be a doctor, um, a nurse practitioner, and you know, the truth is it may not even have been the doctor, like when you called to make your appointment, maybe the receptionist was rude to you. When you go in for your first visit, maybe the person that's taking your vitals made you uncomfortable. Whatever the case is, you have to remember that number one, it's not you, it's usually about their ignorance with HIV. So try to um, ignore the, the microaggressions um, and just kind of laid out in the open. So I have actually said to someone, I know that you see I'm living with HIV. Is something making you uncomfortable? And usually that's all it takes to break the ice. So um, don't ignore it. Try to address it as, as your, whatever your comfort level is, try to address it at your comfort level. Oh, cause you just called them out straight like that. I know you see I'm living with HIV. <laughs> Does that make you uncomfortable? Like, obviously they were uncomfortable. I could tell. Um, so at this point, way back in the beginning of my diagnosis, I would not have been able to do that. I would not have been able to do that. It takes time to get to that level and to get to that space. And it's either, it's either that enough time has passed and you've learned enough information or you're just frustrated and fed up and you don't want to deal with it anymore. And so I was at a place where it was kind of a combination of both. Like, I'm over this. We're going to talk about it so we can move on. Either you're going to, you know, change up your ways because you know that I, you, you see me seeing you or this relationship is not going to work. And so that's what you have to do. Um, the other thing is, like, the clinic that I used to work at, I worked at a, um, an aid service organization, an ASO. Um, and we would take nursing students in right before they were graduating. And the nursing students would come in with their day and a half of outdated HIV education to come into an infectious disease clinic who also saw primary care patients. So we had a mix of patients. It wasn't just one certain type. And the first couple of cycles of this class that came in, the students were coming in and when they were doing vitals, they're wearing gloves, which obviously is triggering for people who are living with whatever infectious disease it is, whether it's HIV or hepatitis or um, 
some sort of fungal infection, whatever it is. So the general rule in nursing and in, in medicine is that if there is the presence of bodily fluids, then you use universal precautions. You put your gloves on. If there's no bodily fluids, there's no reason for you to wear gloves. And so this was something that we had to teach these new nursing students who are coming out to take care of people that what are you wearing gloves for? Because they're on outdated information. They think bodily fluids. And unfortunately, people are still learning that sweat and tears are ways that HIV is transmissible. That's not the truth. Um, so the education part is what's important. And knowing the more you know about your own life process and disease process, the better off you are and the better you're able to deal with um, other clinicians. I strongly, strongly agree with that. And I have a recent experience, um, you know, just giving birth. And through the entire birthing, like planning to get there, I've been working with a set team of HIV providers who I had all of the confidence in their office, outside of the office, because we were on the same page. They've known me since the beginning of this pregnancy, everything. So now I'm going into the hospital to deliver. Now I'm like, I feel kind of like being thrown to the wolves a little bit, but I felt like I had some protection because I had this HIV team behind me. So they had written letters. They left their numbers in my chart, everything. Still, while I'm in the hospital, a doctor tells me that because I'm giving birth and I'm living with HIV, that my baby may have to go to the NICU, which totally threw me off because why would that baby need to go there? Um, then I had the neonatologist. He actually came down to my room to talk to me about um, my decision to breastfeed when this had already been ironed out. Then I had the pediatric doctor the next morning. She came down to, you know, give me this big spill about why I should not be breastfeeding. So when I was thinking about blocking out certain information, it was that these are people that don't typically work with people that are living with HIV. I already have this plan in place, you know, and this has been worked on with people that do typically work with people living with HIV. So I kind of had to go in there in this mind frame. Like I know that there's going to be some opposition, but I have already made myself prepared as possible, you know, to deal with it. So it's like, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but that's not what we're doing today. Um, I can say that early on in my diagnosis, too, I would have never been able to stand so strongly and firmly. I had that <laughs> pediatrician doctor. She stayed in my room like 30 minutes, and I did most of the talking because I wasn't even going to allow her to infiltrate what I had going on. Like, miss, and here go some resources, and you can go to the Well Projects um, page, and we have, we've done this and this, and there's a consensus statement and all of this. So the next day, she came back and was like, I even visited the Well Projects site you know and it's a lot of good stuff there and she was able to share it with her colleagues so I definitely think that you know education on both ends you know us being educated for ourselves and our providers that we're going to trust in that they are educated enough to help support us you know whatever care that we're searching for at this time um when I think of like non-HIV providers I know that this might be a little like out the box but nail shops when I first got diagnosed I thought that I would have to disclose to everybody like anybody that I would potentially be putting 
at um, risk. So I'm like, okay, if they're scrubbing my feet with the, or shaving it and I start bleeding, like maybe now I've potentially exposed them. So I need to just be telling everybody. And after a while, it just didn't make sense anymore. Like maybe that's not a place that I have to disclose. So when we're talking about places like that, and this is a really good question. I actually did some research before um, doing this so that I could kind of present things. And unfortunately, there are very few laws and very little information about disclosure to providers. It, they kind of leave it um, to a um, your morals, right? A moral code, the expectation that you as the person living with HIV have a responsibility to yada, 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 right? So number one, there's no laws anywhere that I was able to find that say that you have to disclose to um, outside providers. Um, when it comes to things like nail shops, um, tattoos, um, things like that where there's um, needle and potentially blood involved, um, there's no right or wrong answer. Like it's not my, my business, my duty, my job, my responsibility to put my set of morals or someone else's set of morals on you, right? So if you feel like it's the right thing to do to disclose at a nail shop, then that is the right thing to do to disclose at a nail shop. Um, with U equals U now, we know that obviously the risk has significantly gone away, if not disappeared. Um, for me, when I go and I get my nails done, I don't disclose my HIV status. It's not necessarily for my nail tech to know my HIV status because if they happen to nick me and I start bleeding, number one, number one, most in most cases now, especially with COVID, they're wearing gloves anyway. Number two, it is such a minuscule amount of blood. Your skin is a natural, your first natural barrier anyway. So them getting a little tiny drop of my blood on them is not going to put them at risk, right? Persons living with HIV, we know that we're familiar with that. It's the people who don't live with HIV or who not who are not heavily involved in the HIV field that don't know that. Um, when it comes to tattoos, I believe in this is my personal opinion. I think that you should disclose when you go to get tattoos done, um, just so that you give the tattoo artist that extra space to be um, aware, clean. You. Uh, there's almost no risk of you getting HIV from a tattoo needle, but there is the presence of blood. It is in the air, you know, all of that. So for that purpose, I would say, yes, you need to, to disclose. Um, if you're going to see an allergist, for example, do you need to disclose your status? No. Um, I've had, and the reason that I chose allergists is because I had a negative experience um, with an allergist going to see them. I had already seen them once. I went to see him a second time and the second time, he obviously read my chart the second time, but not the first time, because the first time when he came in, he we did the examination. He wasn't afraid to touch me. He was standing close to me. We were having a conversation. We had a rapport going back and forth. The second time I went to see him, um, he stood practically by the door. Um, I see that, uh, Jen, and I would look that law up because I didn't find it. Um, when I was looking, it is something to take back and do some research on. And what I'll do is I'll try to research it and then post it in the chat. She was saying that she saw in Florida that it was illegal um, with HIV to get a tattoo. So we'll look that up. Um, 
I, I, I doubt that, but I'll look it up. Um, but anyway, what I was saying is that the second time he was obviously uncomfortable, stayed across the room from me, no physical examination of me at all whatsoever. We had a conversation about what I was gonna do, what the plan going forward was. And as I'm walking out of the room, he says to me, um, so what happened? Um, how did you, how did this happen? Was it a blood transfusion? My head is still in our conversation about my allergies. And I'm like, what are you talking about, doctor? Like the only thing that I've done, I had the blood test ordered that you wanted me to get done. And as soon as I said that, it occurred to me and clicked that he was talking about my HIV. And so I sat and I waited because now I'm at a point where I'm going to let you be ignorant by yourself. So I sat and I waited for him to repeat the question to me. Uh, you know, the HIV, it's so rare to see it in women, especially black women. We are one of the most vulnerable groups currently to HIV, black women in general, black women in particular. Um, but the area that I live in, there's not a lot of black women and there's definitely not a lot of black women living with HIV. And so my response to him was, well, sex doctor, were there any other questions? And I made him uncomfortable by asking him that question in that manner. And so um, it's important to know the reality is someone's gonna say something to you at some point um, that's gonna make you uncomfortable. So be it an allergist, if you get referred out um, and you're going to see an OB, CC like in your case, do I think it's important to tell an OB that you're HIV positive? Yes, because we're talking about reproduction. There are um, other things that come into play if you're trying to have a baby, um, if you are having issues with fibroids and, you know, potential cancer and whatever, whatever. So it's important for someone like an OB to know because you need to have that trusting relationship, but it's not necessary for everybody to know your status. It's just not, it's your business. It's not necessarily their business. So I'm going to bring it back into like the medical, um, medical providers. So someone mentioned something about a dentist said, um, I think Krista said that it was an old blog that was written and the dentist did not discriminate or treat the person any type of way because of their HIV status, which I think is like, should be standard. I should not be treated any type of way. And as a situation like that it feels like universal precautions would just be the standard because you're in people's mouths and dealing with you know all of that that's going on there i have had another experience which this dentist was in the aso it, it's a part of the hiv clinic or whatever and it wasn't hiv that they discriminated against i guess that was great you know because we're in their clinic but it was because i had been exposed to zika virus at one time so me going in and being honest and transparent with them now the I was discriminated against because of my exposure to the Zika virus. And in my head, it was like, you already used to dealing with a vulnerable population already. Like you're used to dealing with people that are living with HIV. So it seems, I assumed that there would be a little bit more compassion and sensitivity coming from these people. But I think that it is the space of not knowing, like in the fear of the unknown, because at this time it was scary, I guess, I'm not, I can't remember what year that was, 
because of that and not having enough information, they turned me away. So now this would have been my third day requesting time off from work. Like, you know, we don't get a lot of time, period. To go travel downtown, to go to this office, and you're turning me away now because of my exposure to Zika virus. And I just felt like, I don't know, I felt like they would have handled it with a little bit more care than how it was handled. They had me in the chair getting ready. I think it was just a teeth cleaning. I was there for a period. Um, so I'm in the chair, laid back already. And I guess because of my disclosure of the exposure to Zika virus, the lady leaves out and comes back in with, you know, one of those, the teeth, like one of those toy teeth and a big toothbrush. And so instead of cleaning my teeth, she was going to show me how to brush my teeth, which felt very condescending and then sent me out and let me know that she would not be able to care for me that day and I would have to reschedule. It's like, oh my God, like, no, this is the last place that I felt like I would have been discriminated against. So you are absolutely correct. And Krista said it too, universal precautions, are universal precautions, period. It shouldn't matter if you know someone has had an exposure to Zika virus. It shouldn't matter if you know someone has had an exposure to HIV or hepatitis or whatever um, the case may be because universal precautions are universal precautions. I've had um, a couple of really, so in the very beginning of my diagnosis that were kind of devastating to me and um, one of the reasons, or there are two of the reasons that I am the nurse that I am when it comes to dealing with things like um, touching people and um, that connection and healing that you get from touching someone. Um, when I was in nursing school, in nursing school, um, one of the RNs was not going to let me participate in the skills day where we um, practice giving each other injections because I tried to, just like you, tried to do the right thing and say, hey, this is what my situation is. I'm just making you aware. She actually told me that there was no place to put my needles, the needles that were used on me. I'm like, there's a sharps container right there. So in my head, I'm, brand, I'm still newly diagnosed. I don't really know anything about the medical field other than going to appointments. I'm in nursing school and it hurt me so bad that I didn't know everything, but I knew enough to know it's a sharps container right there. That's where it goes. And so that's what I said. I'm like, they would just go on the sharps. And she's like, well, no, she tried to make it about the person who would be emptying the sharps rather than admitting her discomfort with the idea that I, that I had HIV. And mind you, I'd already talked to a classmate about it who had agreed to be my partner and was comfortable with being my partner. So that ended up being a thing, but we'll move on past that. And then I had an OB. Um, I'll make a long story short. And during the examination, he came in, he had on booties, a head covering, gloves, goggles, and two gowns, two gowns, all of which is completely unnecessary. Have you ever had an, an, a pap smear where the, the doctor was completely geared up from head to foot? Never, right? <laughs> and, so, and so I know when I know what it feels like to face that kind of discrimination that you're talking about in the chair firsthand. And it was very discouraging. And it really made me kind of feel like, is nursing really what I want to do? But I had to flip that around and remember that 
this is exactly where I need to be for exactly this kind of reason. Um, so yeah, universal precautions are universal precautions and it shouldn't matter. And I would suggest that everyone here, if you don't know what universal precautions are, just Google it, take a quick read because it's important. It matters. It can help you have a conversation that's really important that can be uncomfortable. Oh my gosh, that put tears in my eyes. Like, as you're explaining what he looks like coming in here to do a pep smear, I'm like, that's what they look like when I was going into labor. Like, you know, everybody comes in all suited and booted, but that makes sense, you know, the reason why. Not because of me, it's because you're protecting the safety, you know, of a child entering the world, not because you're going to examine my body parts. Wow. So, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> it just frazzled me so much. So someone wrote a comment talking about the ER doctors and staff, how they feel like they're like the worst knowledgeable about HIV. He said that he always found himself having to um, educate them. And that sometimes is a little intimidating for me because I do this to myself. But because they have all these initials behind their name, you know, and they went to school so long, I feel like they would be more of experts on this status. Like, they would be more experts on the subject than me. So I'm like, okay, whatever you say must be it because you went to school for it. But then I came to realize that a lot of them are just going back to look at the CDC recommendations, because we've I've heard of a story of that, like where the doctor is Googling the recommendations while the patient is in the office. And I feel like that is why it's so important for changes to be made there first, because if this is where providers are looking for their information and their knowledge to pass on to patients, then organizations, entities such as the Centers for Disease Control must keep their information updated and pretty current and I'm finding that that's not always the case I was actually my meds had to change because of the um, pregnancy and when I got to my OBGYN he was like oh that's old recommendations but the person that prescribed the new meds were not wrong because that is what CDC currently recommends so I feel like so many of the issues are there. Are there any other, as a medical provider, are there any other sources that y'all look for, you know, to get your information from, whether it's HIV or any other infections? So um, I actually, I absolutely agree with you um, that the CDC is not always, and it's not that they're not right, it's just that they're not specific and you know, new information about HIV comes out every year. Like medications change all the time. Just in, I think 2019, there were eight new medications that were introduced for HIV. So it changes all of the time. And to the point about ER doctors not being knowledgeable um, or other physicians not being knowledgeable, the, the idea is that there's a specialty for that, right? So unless you're in HIV, there's not a lot of information and people don't bother to learn, unfortunately, I hate to say it that way, but they don't bother to learn anything more than the basics because they know that there's a specialist that you can be sent to that specializes in it. And it doesn't help us in the everyday average, you know, kind of interaction with them, like going to the, the emergency room. The idea of the emergency room is to get you stable and get you out. So they, they don't spend a lot of time, unfortunately, getting, they know how to test you, 
Um, they know theoretically how to deliver the information to you, which is kind of, you know, touchy. Um, but unless you are involved in HIV, you just don't bother to learn a lot about it because you know there's someone else that does know. And I, I personally, I champion for that to change. I think that there needs to be more conversations between um, regular primary care providers or specialty providers um, and HIV specialists or infectious disease specialists so that we can start to bridge this gap um, because for example, the ER is the best place to get a diagnosis. You're there, right? They can test you. You can find something like that out. But um, there's kind of a pervasive um, feeling of it's not my specialty, so I don't need to know. And I find it very frustrating. Um, there are other resources um, that clinicians and um, physicians can use to get the most up-to-date information. But again, you know, the idea is why when I can send you to see your specialist who's going to know about it and who's going to be up on all of all of the information. I don't. I wish things were different. And that's one of my goals is to try to do what I can to fight to make things different. Um, but for right now, the best thing that you can do or that we can do is to make sure that we are armed with at least the very basic knowledge um, of how the, the process works. U equals U is super important. There's not enough um, information being um, disseminated to non-HIV, non-infectious disease clinicians and providers about U equals U. We really need to get the word out about U equals U and people need to get familiar because it really does make a huge difference in everything from just our general quality of life to the types of cares and things that, that um, we can expect um, to get when we go to other places. Sorry, medical professional. Can you please explain what U equals U is for those who may not know? I can't. I always forget. Um, U equals U is undetectable, is untransmittable. So if my viral load is undetectable, um, then I cannot pass my HIV virus on to the next person. Um, so uh, I, I always explain it to people like this. People who think that Magic Johnson are cu is cured, he's not cured, he's undetectable. That's how I tell them. And then it seems to like click and make sense. Okay, <laughs> I've never explained it like that, but yes, that's such a quick way to do that. Okay, so when I think about disclosing to non-HIV providers, I, I wouldn't know who to disclose to, you know, or not to disclose to. And I say that because I guess undetectable seems to be the most important thing at the beginning of my diagnosis. I've been positive since 2008. So, you know, we just want to make sure that your viral load is low and that you're undetectable. That's it. I had no clue early on of the effects of this HIV medication on other parts of my body. Like, I didn't know that, you know, it could potentially make me gain weight, that I could stay up all night, you know, just whatever side effects there were from the medications I was on at that time. So while I'm over here, you know, not disclosing to certain specialists or doctors, um, I feel like it could be to my detriment as well because it could be something HIV related but I don't know because I didn't realize that it was an indirect 
or direct, you know, side effect of what I was going through at that moment. Um, it, I believe it puts you in a really sticky situation if you're trying to figure out on your own, you know, who you should be disclosing to. That's why that trust is so important. The trust and the mutual respect that we have with our providers is so important. And I speak often, you know, on the biases that and the judgment stereotypes that these providers walk into these these appointments with like I should be able to just trust you just objectively tell you that this is what I'm going through in my life and you are able to provide me care and treatment with what you have there not that I I shouldn't be afraid of or fearful of you you know scrunching your face up or whatever it is that anything that I tell you because I need to be transparent open and honest with you so I can receive the care that I need and it's so hard to find professionals like that sometimes. I'll say that I have been lucky to have a team of people that I can trust like that. But there have been times and I've heard of stories of people who are not so lucky. And it makes me it makes me sad, sort of. I just saw a comment. Oh, one of my clients was in the hospital dying and a nurse actually told me that they are no longer taught protocols for HIV and AIDS and asked me about what was happening with all the OIs and what she could do for him. I felt like I had been punched in the stomach, probably stared at her a little too long and then gave her every bit of the information I have as a non-medical professional and encouraged her to talk to her supervisor to get training. I feel like training is where it's at do you well I guess you work in the field so you go through like frequent training for HIV and AIDS first of all that that hurts my heart like that hurts my heart oh my god so um they still teach nurses the basics the basics like I was saying about the nursing students that come in they get like a day a day and a half um, depending on what their program is. Um, uh, sometimes it's a little bit more. So um, again, it goes back to what I was saying before. Um, I'm so mad right now. <laughs> it goes back to what I was saying before about um, if you're not in it or you don't know someone in it, then you leave it to the, the professionals. You leave it to the specialists. Um, I, as a person working in an ASO, um, in an AIDS surface organization, working with persons who live with HIV, um, there is training available. Um, there, like, it behooves me to be on top of what the latest and the greatest is, not just for my sake, but for my patient's sake. Like, I want to be the best nurse that I could possibly be. Um, and so to be the best nurse that I could possibly be, I feel like I need to know a tiny little bit about a whole lot. So um, for example, I'm not an orthopedics nurse. I don't know anything about wrapping a cast, but I can tell you the basic types of break that a person could get because I need to know that. Um, I take care of, of patients, I do home health work. So I need to know a little bit about hip replacement. 
I need to know a little bit about the infections that are possible from a hip replacement. I need to know a little bit about cleaning wounds. So every nurse should know a little bit about everything or be able to fall back on their experience to kind of reason through the process. And so for that nurse to say that um, offends me and it makes me mad and it upsets me. Um, and it makes me feel bad for the patients. Um, and it's not necessarily that she's a bad person. She just has, depending on where, you know, if she's in a surgical ward or a med surge ward or whatever, she has all of this other stuff that she has to worry about and do. And so what I'm saying is I'm not trying to make excuses for other clinicians for what they don't know, but they don't know what they don't know because it's not their field of expertise, which is why it's so hard for you or I to walk into a place like you were saying and know that I'm gonna be respected and have a trusting relationship. Like I could never ever see myself going back to this particular OB doctor. Like I had to tell him several times that I had HIV and not AIDS. And he was like, well, isn't it the same thing? It's that kind of, of nonchalant disregard for what I, the information I'm trying to give you. And that is on that person, right? It's not about me, that is about them. There is what I call being woefully ignorant and willfully ignorant. And woefully ignorant is I just don't know. Like I've never bothered to learn, nobody has ever taught me, so I don't know. Willful ignorance is me sitting here and telling you, I don't have AIDS, I have HIV, and you coming back two minutes later and saying, well, when did you get your AIDS diagnosis? That's willful ignorance. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that. And so we have to do what we can as um, people living with the virus to try to combat that and leave a little piece of ourselves with that person so that when they move on, to the next person they remember. So every time one of us comes into contact with someone who doesn't know anything about HIV, negative or positive, we leave a little piece of ourselves with them. And if we try to make it positive and educational, then they take that on to the next person that they deal with. They tell their coworkers about it. Each one teach one. I know you've heard me say that before. That's like my thing, each one teach one. So if I teach you just a little bit about what's going on with me and you tell 10 people, each one has taught one and the world is just a little bit better and it takes time. I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know how to make it better all at once. Like you can't force people, you can't force clinicians to go in and learn everything about HIV just because, you know, there's millions of us living with it in the world, which would make sense, right? But that's unfortunately not how things work. Okay, yeah, there, there are so many. So it seems hard to know that you know, our needs sometimes are not addressed or thought about ahead of time. Like, I know I'm not the only one living with this. <laughs> so I had a question from one of our cab members that says, um, simply, why don't providers read our charts? Why is it imperative that they do? And what's the way to advocate for that? Um... I find it to be so important as well. I shouldn't even have to disclose a lot of times to any medical professional that walks into my room because I've already 
more than likely disclosed on the paperwork that I filled out in front because they don't often miss that question there. I've exposed to many providers ahead of time. There are things like my chart. I can see all of my appointments from all of these people that I've been to. So if you had just taken a moment to, you know, look into that patient that you're walking into, then you would have known, you know, that I'm living with HIV and it doesn't even have to be a discussion. It doesn't have to be disclosed. None of it. I, I posted on Facebook a couple weeks ago how <laughs> the nurse came in and she was ready to stick my finger to give me an HIV test. And I'm like, miss, but I don't need it. She's like, no, no, we do this for everybody. And I was like, but miss, I'm already positive. And she's like, oh, that's that's what you were trying to say basically yes i feel like a lot of times um because i hear this explanation often um you know they're just moving moving so quickly they're pushing people through the appointments and whatever so maybe just taking a little moment to invest into the person that you're walking into learning a little bit you're not gonna be able to learn my entire history but something like that I'm sure that comes up at the top, up underneath of my diagnosis. Um, why do you feel like, no, how do you feel like we can advocate, you know, for something like that to be done? For them, I, I don't want to say that they don't care, but how can we get the providers to invest into us a little bit more? So this is where that double hat comes on. Um, of being both a person living with HIV and being a nurse. So um, the person living with HIV in me is so frustrated by this every time it happens. The nurse in me is so frustrated by this every time it happens. And again, like I was saying before, it's not to make excuses, but the reality is, is that medicine in the United States has always been crap, number one. <laughs> Number two, it is changing and it is becoming very much a, um, unfortunately, it's about money. The more patients you can see in a day, the more you can bill for, the more money that an organization makes. And so clinicians, providers, doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs are being put into a position where they only have 20 minutes to see an appointment. And it's 20 minutes for the appointment. And that means that I, as a nurse, have to take your vitals, do a brief history of why you're here today, any questions or concerns you may have for the clinician. That part right there, if I do a good job, is gonna take anywhere from seven to 10 minutes of that 20 minute appointment. So now you have 10 minutes in with the clinician. And it is a shame. And um, it's one of the things that a lot of the providers and clinicians that I know express frustration with because they have 20 minutes appointments all day long. Plus they still have to chart about what they've heard from you so that the next time someone goes to look at, at your chart, they have the most recent information. So it's not all on the clinicians. Um, I do believe that um, there can be some prep time done um, prior to you walking in, especially particularly if you're a new patient. I think that new patients should be allowed a longer appointment time an hour at least, because it takes that much time to kind of get to know a person and be able to look them in their face and be able to talk to them about what their concerns are. And unfortunately, a lot of times now, clinicians only get 30 minutes for a new 
brand new person walking into their office. So it is not always the clinician's fault. And sometimes they're doing the best that they can. Sometimes they're just, they just don't care and they have burnout, which is unfortunate and I hate to see it. But from the nurse provider perspective, all I can do is ask people to remember to be patient. If you have issues or concerns that you wanna have addressed with your doctor, send them a MyChart message. Call and leave a message with the nurse or receptionist. Um, whatever you can do to make them aware of, of you know, what's going on or what your biggest concerns are when you walk into that office before you get there is a help to them. It's not gonna, if they're a good provider, a good clinician, it's not gonna upset them. It's gonna make them be more appreciative because they have time to address what's going on with you. So I totally agree with you, Cece. Um, they should know. Every that the the um, allergist that I saw should have known from the first time that I walked into his office what he was dealing with, not the second time that I get there. But these things are going to happen, and the best that we can do is not to take it to heart and not to let it color our whole entire relationship or interaction with this person because you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, and I hate the word unfortunately, but it, do, it does, it happens. There's no clear cut answer. The best thing that I can tell you is because they have so little time now to see patients. 20 minutes is no time. Really a 30 minute appointment is not that much, but that's really what's happening. You'll notice that when you go to, to see your doctor right now, you have mostly 20 minute appointments um, or 30 minute appointments. If that OB had read your chart the first time, he would have discriminated against you the first time. We wouldn't have had to wait till time number two. <laughs> I think that he still would have, knowing who he was, the type of person he was, because it just, like, when I tell you that was the most horrible experience, I was still, like I said, I was still early on in my diagnosis. I didn't have real insurance. Um, I had been referred there from my aid service organization. Um, the next closest OB doctor to where I was living at the time was like 45 to an hour away um, from where I was. And I didn't have reliable transportation. But when I went in to see that man for the second appointment, the second time that I saw him, he made me wait, the one that I was talking about where he did the exam, he made me wait to be the last appointment of the day. The la And my appointment, was, so just to give you an idea, my appointment was at two o'clock. I didn't see him until 5.30 and they took women who came in after me, before me. And it took a second for it to click that that's what was happening, but that's what was happening. So the things that um, we do at one point in our, in our life, we would never do at another point in our life. But him being who he was, he still would have been a jerk regardless of if he had read my, point, my, my chart or not. Not laughing because it's funny. I guess I laugh to stop from crying sometimes because that makes me so sad and it makes me want to fuss people out. But I'm a chill. I'm a chill. I love this comment that was put here. I believe providers need to follow, I mean, need to allow for a lot of time with the patient, get to know the person before the patient. I thought that was a very profound comment. I, I like when people. I don't know, get to know me as a person because I'm the same CC anywhere I show up in any space. So I'm going to, you know, be as transparent and open as possible um, in that space. And 
I would like for you to get to know that person first and the person that is living with HIV because I think that you'll you'll get two different and paint two different pictures in your head depending on you know how you're looking at that. I missed a couple of those comments that just came up. Oh, this one is from Heather Hill. Um says when I was diagnosed in 2005 in San Francisco, the resident assigned to me told me I shouldn't be so upset as new diagnoses have at least five years to live. What? What? Five years. And go ahead. You're shaking your head. I know. It, it, it just is it, it hurts me to hear that. And the flip side is how far we've come, you know, with life expectancy when we're living with HIV. And um, Heather, I'm sorry that, you know, I, I think the thing that that gets me sometimes is that um, there are really good nurses and doctors. There are amazing nurses and doctors. And then there's some that somewhere along the way lose the spark that started them on this path or or have seen so much that it's kind of um, numbed them a little bit to the impact that a statement like that can have on a person. And so that's why I say like now, when you go in and you speak to um, a doctor or a nurse or someone that, here's, here's my general rule of thumb, okay? How I deal with it in my life, generally speaking. If I'm going to be seeing a clinician for multiple appointments, then I want to disclose my status and have a conversation so that you can be comfortable with me and I can be comfortable with you. And so that we can have that rapport going on. If I'm only coming to see you one time, if I'm going to an eye exam, there's no need for me to tell the doctor that I'm living with HIV. It's pointless. But if I'm going to a specialist because um, I have something going on with my kidneys, which like you were talking about earlier, HIV meds can affect your kidneys, then I need him to be aware that this is what's going on with me. In case he hasn't read my chart, I'm gonna bring it up so we can get it in the open so we can have this talk because I need to know that you know these meds are, this is the medication that I'm taking. And maybe if I change medications, that's gonna change and I don't need to see you. Or maybe you're gonna prescribe me a medication that interacts with one of my HIV medications, which is why it's also important when you see someone outside of your um, your infectious disease provider, if they provide you medication, you need to let your infectious disease provider know so that they can make sure there's no drug-drug interaction. Um, when it comes to people like the person that spoke to Heather and, you know, I don't even know what to say. I'm so frustrated by that. I don't even know what to say about that. Um, just thank, thank God that medicine has come so far, that um, HIV research has come so far, that we are literally like now in cure trials, like we've come so far. We still have a long way to go when it comes to the relationships between um, persons living with HIV and their they're non-HIV providers. They're the average person on the street, the nail tech, the tattoo artist, the dentist. Um, dentists should be using universal precautions. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be necessary um, to disclose. Do I recommend it? Yes, because it's the right thing to do. Um, 
And, you know, you have to be worried about infection sometimes when it comes to going to see a dentist. So you want to be able to have antibiotics prescribed and so on and so forth. But it really is kind of a personal choice for who you disclose to. But for you to get the best possible care that you can um, and to move forward without being uncomfortable um, and without feeling like they don't know all the facts, you know, it's probably a good idea to disclose if you're going to see somebody more than once. Well, you just taught me something or made me think about something a little bit. The um, drug interactions. I would have never thought about that. I just take everything that they would prescribe to me. I'm not really a big medicine taker, but if a professional had prescribed me something, then I would be like, okay, well, this is cool. Not thinking that any of these things could adversely interact with each other. Um would have never considered that Heather talks about how she's still traumatized and yes these experiences can be extremely traumatizing and you'll be dealing with that you know for a long while long long while after that person made that very ignorant statement in their office um even whether that was a HIV provider or not I think that the word still holds the same weight you know like and for you to still be talking about this in the year 2021 and it happened in 2005 I'm so sorry that you had the experience that um here goes a person that says that they were traumatized on just their status but thankfully the doctor was so patient in explaining the pros and cons but the social worker is who helped me to feel comfortable enough to set my status and here I am 18 years later yes oh Heather says it was a resident on the pulmonary wing oh my gosh like not even where you would think that you would be getting that type of information and that to me is frustrating um to when I went to go get induced for Zori and for that doctor to first like her first words to me almost are that the baby might have to go to the NICU that was something that I was trying to avoid because it happened with my first child but that wasn't HIV related so it was something that I was trying to avoid this time and for that to be her first words and for it to be related to HIV I just couldn't wrap my mind around it and she had to like retract it at some point it's like well I don't know you know that might have been a protocol at one time I'm not really sure it's just it's frustrating so frustrating let me make sure that I haven't missed any comments do you want to end on anything do you want to leave the people with something while I do this well I just wanted to say like what you were talking about um your interaction with her goes back to what I was talking about earlier. She left that interaction knowing something she didn't know before and being curious enough about it. Same thing with the, um, the person from the NICU. They both left knowing that they needed to go get some more information about some, something, right? Something that some piece, some little gem that you gave them. And that is my gem to give to everyone. As frustrating as um, and hurtful um, and overwhelming as it can be to have these little microaggressions pushed on us um, and feeling like someone is not hearing you, I promise you that the interaction that you have with them is gonna make them go back 
and be a slightly better person. <laughs> it may not make them be a great person, but it'll make them be a slightly better person. Um, and I just always try to remind people that it's not about who you are. You know, it's, it's about the, the three or the four letters. Um, and so get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, have those tough conversations because it, at the end of the day, you are your best advocate. You are your best advocate. There's a lot that nurses will advocate for you for. Um, I'm a living witness, um, but you are your best advocate. And the more that you know, and the more secure you are in knowing that you have to advocate for yourself and stand up for yourself, the better um, your health journey will be. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much for that. Um, I do. I feel like a great advocate and it, it is the well project. So if you find yourself in a position where you you're having a hard time advocating for yourself and you need a sense of community, I would highly suggest the well project. Um, you know, I, I have found so much support here and I will always work for people here. So with that being said, I want to remind everyone to please complete our survey. Um, Krista has posted the link inside of the chat here. So just click the link, um, answer a few questions, you know, and let us know how we are helping and serving you and how we're doing, how well we're doing at that. So, that is the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Bridget, for being here with us for the 12th episode. Next week, or the next episode, excuse me, in two weeks, we'll be talking with Tiami Luckett. I believe that's her last name. Um, That will be in honor of Trans Day of Remembrance. Yes, Transgender Day of Remembrance on November 17th. I'm so excited to sit down and speak with her. We'll be talking about and honoring um, the importance and resilience of the transgender community. Um, thank y'all for being here. And we'll see y'all then. Bye, everybody. Bye.